Russell, thank you for leading us through that. Uh, just one more thing to note. Uh, Gospel Kids is still open. If you want to take your kids back there, it's fine. If not, totally get it. No biggie. We'll, we'll deal this morning. But uh, feel free to kind of go back to normal there as well. All right. I love you guys. Let's do this. Let's look at God's word. Let's open up to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. You can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It should be on page, I think it's 922. <clears throat> All right, let's go to the Lord one more time and ask for his help. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For this morning, thank you for strange mornings. Thank you for this church that loves each other so much. Thank you for the leadership that you've given us. Thank you for the godliness that you've given uh, everybody in this church. There's just so many good things that uh, were exposed in difficult things. But Lord, we pray now that you would come and, yes, help us to see and love your word. Help us to examine ourselves in light of your word and to submit ourselves to your word. Help us to see that there's also beauty and goodness in your creation and that we should receive it with thanksgiving and gladness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So C.S. Lewis, he once described a scene in a dark tool shed. It was pitch black except for this single beam of light that was coming in above the door. And this is what he says. He says, I was seeing the beam, but not seeing things by it. But then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Creation works in much the same way. Anyone can look at creation, but it's much more difficult to actually look along creation. Creation is not meant to just be looked at and tasted and experienced for its own sake, but creation is meant to be a window into heavenly realities. You're supposed to trace the beam of creation all the way up to its source, namely God himself. That's a good thing. But here's the other thing. The devil does not want you to taste creation. He doesn't want you to experience creation like that. He doesn't want you to trace it all the way back up to God. The devil wants to twist our relationship with creation so that it hurts us instead of helps us, so that we'll be oblivious and we'll be thankless and we'll be addicted and enslaved, which brings us to the heart of the text this morning. God's creation is good, and it is meant to lead us into thanksgiving, but the devil uses it to lead us into destruction. One more time. You're going to take notes. It's a good thing to write down. God's creation is meant to lead us into thanksgiving, but the devil uses it to lead us into destruction. So let's read the text, 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. Please look there with me. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times 
some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and totally sufficient word. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, three points for you. Point number one, the Spirit's warning. Point number two, the demon's teachings. And point number three, the Christian's thanksgiving. So point number one, the Spirit's warning. So as Timothy is trying to lead the church there in Ephesus, he's running into some serious problems. These false teachers are coming in. They're teaching all this nonsense. People are babbling about a bunch of useless stuff all day. Professing Christians are abandoning the gospel, and they're believing and clinging to these false gospels. So it's really, really, really bad there in Ephesus. But Paul, he wants Timothy to know that these problems that are cropping up, they're not unusual. They're not something that should surprise Timothy or the people there at Ephesus. So look there at verse 1 again. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Now, where does the the Spirit expressly say that? Well, how does the Spirit expressly say anything? Well, we know, as good Christians, the first and most important way that the Spirit speaks is through the Scriptures. The Bible is inspired. It's, It's filled up with the very breath of God, namely the Spirit of God. To read God's Word is to listen to the Spirit of God actually speak. I don't want us to blow past that. Like, that's an amazing reality. That you can grab a book in your hands, and you can take your eyes, and you can pass them over some ink, and in doing so, you are actually experiencing and hearing the very Word of God. God speaks to us in the Scriptures. We also know that the Spirit spoke through the Apostles. After the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, he commissioned the apostles and he sent them out so they would give out a bunch of new revelation. The apostles became conduits like the prophets before them, saying, this is what God says, thus says the Lord. Paul knew this about himself. Like There was a certain amount of boldness and self-confidence that he was actually revealing the very things of God. He writes to the Corinthians that they should acknowledge that the things I am writing you are a command of the Lord. That's pretty amazing. None of us can say that, that when I write something down, you know, thus says the Lord, you must obey me just as you would obey God. But Paul said that. Well, why was Paul saying that? He was able to say that because the Spirit was working through him. Paul also testified, or sorry, Peter also testified, that Paul's words were like the other scriptures, meaning that they are inspired, meaning they are the words of God himself. So, Back to the question at hand, if you've been following me. When did the Spirit expressly say that some people are going to depart from the faith? We don't know that for sure. I I couldn't tell you with any degree of certainty. He's not quoting the Scripture. He may be referencing some Scripture. Or he might just mean that right now the Spirit is speaking through me, telling you, Timothy, that some are going to depart from the faith. We should probably just note this too, that in Acts chapter 20, 
the Spirit speaking through Paul said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He told them that's what was going to happen, and that's exactly what was happening at Ephesus. Now, he also says that this is going to happen at later times. The Spirit says people will fall away when? In later times. Now, by later times, Paul does not mean sometime in the future. Paul actually means that it's happening right now. And we can get at that because it's happening in Ephesus right now. In later times, meaning right now, Timothy, people are going to depart from the faith. We could look at that in a bunch of different places. But what I want you to know is that the later times or the last times when the Bible says that is talking about right now. We are currently in the later times. We could look at that in several places, but the book of Hebrews says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. When did he speak to us by his son? In the last days. Well, when was that? Well, like 2,000 years ago. So we're currently in the last days, the time in which the son has spoken to his people. What this means then, brothers and sisters, is that departing from the faith, it isn't just something that's happening at Ephesus, but it is still in effect today. We are still in the later times when people depart from the faith. And what I want is, I don't want you to be surprised by that reality. Like, that's, that's going to actually happen. People are going to wander off into myths. They're going to follow the God of their belly. Persecution and suffering is going to come, and people are going to fall away. People are going to chase after selfish gain, and they're going to shipwreck their faith. The desires of this world and, the, and pleasures and the riches of this world are going to choke out people's faith. People are going to seek the glory that comes from God or from man instead of the glory that comes from man. People are going to go out from us, John says, proving that they were never really among us. That's terrifying. It is a reality that people who claim Jesus now are going to leave him for something else. And they're going to face death and they're going to face eternal death. That's reality. And all of this has happened and will continue to happen at Sixth Avenue Community Church. Don't be surprised. There are people among us who will abandon Jesus. And they'll say, I'm done with all this Jesus stuff. I just want to chase after the world. I want to pursue money. I want to pursue whatever. And we're going to call them to repentance. And we're going to say, there's nothing out there for you. And if you go out there and pursue all this stuff, you're going to be without Jesus and you will die in your sins. And you will experience the reality of God's judgment. And they won't listen. And they're going to continue. Departing from the faith. And then we're going to have to do the next step. And we're going to, we'll, out of love and out of compassion for them, move to excommunication and say, we don't think you're among us. And we want you to know. We're not going to deceive you and say, oh, yeah, you can live in the world and pursue all this stuff and you still belong to us. No, we want you to know that you are in danger. And so we'll excommunicate them in hopes they'll come back to Jesus. That has happened and will happen. So do not be off guard, brothers and sisters. When it happens, weep for them. And pray for them. 
and examine your own heart in the light of apostasy. The Spirit expressly says that some will depart the faith in later times. Point number two. Point number two, the demon's teachings. If you're still struggling to get on board, I get it. Now they're on point two, there's plenty of time to ramp on right here and follow the rest of the sermon. <laughs> point number two, the demon's teachings. Now it gets good. <clears throat> okay, so what leads to the departure from the faith? Let's, let's look again at verses one through three. Look there. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart the faith from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. So let me give it to you kind of a, in a sentence. Professing Christians fall away because they willingly devote themselves to false doctrines of false teachers who speak not the words of the Holy Spirit, but who speak the words of deceitful demons. Let's dig into that. We're going to break that sentence apart. First, these professing Christians devote themselves. Now, the Greek word for devote here literally means that professing Christians are giving their full attention to false teachers and false doctrines. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that on the one hand, they are deceived. But on the other hand, this is a willful devotion. So how does that work? How does that fit together? Well, the Bible teaches us that there are professing Christians who are actively looking to be deceived. They are trying to be told what they want to hear. They're pursuing it. And what they want to hear, of course, is, is that what they believe is fine and that their sins are acceptable. That's what they want. They're looking to be confirmed in how they already act and think. What they do not want is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? No way. Repentance and faith and holiness, I'm okay. I would rather just live in my sin, find a different way to salvation, and kind of do, on, do my own thing. Like, I'll get on the next bus. Thank you. That's their perspective. Listen to how Paul describes this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Actually, why don't you turn there? 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. Let's flip forward a couple pages or scroll down. I want us to see that there's deception involved, but they're looking for the deception. Paul writes, For the time is coming, which is now, when people will not endure sound teaching. Like they won't suffer it. <laughs> they're tired of hearing it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, who will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Do you see it? Because they have itching ears and sinful passions, they intentionally turn away from the truth and accumulate teachers who will tell them the stuff that they want them to say, which leads them further and further away from Jesus. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the wicked are deceived because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. So follow the logic of that, okay? <laughs> They're saying, I don't love the truth, therefore now they are going to be deceived. Beware of that danger. Beware of that danger that 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I just want you to have this category. That what can feel like this sincere pursuit of the truth can actually be the pursuit of your own passion. I want to say that again. I want you to know this about yourself. Like like right now, please create this category in your mind. That your pursuit of the truth that can feel so sincere can be actually born out of a pursuit of sinful passions. We can justify anything, can't we? So if that's true, humbly admit to yourself. Humbly admit that I could just be trying to look for truth that confirms what I want to be true because I want to live in my sin. But if you'll humbly admit that about yourself, it'll go a long way in protecting yourself from deception. Because you better believe that the devil, he's looking for that blind spot. And he will find it. And he will try to pounce on it. Which brings us to the fact that these teachings are actually the teachings of demons. So, Paul doesn't mean that demons are literally walking up to the pulpit and then they're going to give a three-point sermon. That's not what's happening. We're going to see in a moment. It's the false teachers who are actually doing the teaching. But where do they get their sermons from? Well, they're getting their sermons from hell. Did God really say is the title of each message, and hell's propaganda machine is churning out these sermons one after the other, working hard day and night to twist the truth in order to keep us enslaved to our flesh and oblivious to God's word and utterly thankless towards God. You see, God has an answer to our itching ears. He has an answer to our passions. God wants to give you pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And we'll abide in his word, we'll know the truth. And Jesus tells us that the truth will set us free. We could have infinitely more pleasure, infinitely more pleasure than we have now without any of the consequences of sin. And God would be magnified in it. That is what is being offered to us. And the devil, he cannot allow that to happen. So what does he do? He disseminates truth-twisting doctrines through false teachers. That's his strategy. That's what he does. This is like the powers of hell 101. He wants to truth or twist the truth. Which brings us then to these insincere teachers and their sincere or uh, seared consciences. Because we've got to ask the question, like, how are these demons doing this? How do they go about twisting the scriptures? What's through these men? False teachers creep in among local churches unnoticed. And unfortunately, they're, they're not wearing a sticker that says, Hi, my name is False Teacher. They creep in unnoticed and they seem so godly and, and, and they're so good and they're so wise. But in reality, they are insincere hypocrites and they are play-acting godliness for their own gain. And amazingly, they, they managed to do all of this with a clean conscience. Like these people sleep well at night. You know, the, the, the angel on their shoulder that says, hey, you don't need to do that, they've, they've learned how to block that out in such a way that, like, 
They feel totally justified, totally good. That's what it means when it says their conscience has been seared. Through years of ignoring their conscience, that, that apparatus is supposed to say, hey, like, you shouldn't lie to people just to get money from them. Like, hey, you shouldn't like, pray and try to look godly just so that you can use them. It doesn't work anymore. The Greek word here is literally, it's cauterize. Like they've burned off the nerve endings of their conscience so that it is completely dysfunctional. It's so bad that these false teachers, they're going to wake up in, in judgment one day. And they're going to say, look, Lord, at all these things I did. Look at all these wonderful sermons I preach. Kenneth Copeland's going to be like, look at all this good stuff I did for the world. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And they're going to be confused about it. They're going to go, me? But it was so good. What's happening? They've been so twisted up and their conscience has been so messed up that they don't realize they're evil. It's ironic, isn't it? That the deceivers are totally deceived. They think they are in complete control, like they're some kind of mastermind and that God doesn't like, see all the bad stuff and he's proud of the work that they're doing. But in reality, they are in the same bondage as the people that they deceive. The only difference is, is that they're craftier and more cunning than the rest of the herd. The best and brightest and most charismatic among the deceived, they rise to the top and they become the teachers of the herd. Or as Jesus says, it's the blind leading the blind. These wolves, right? They, they think they're so clever. You know, they, they put on their sheep's clothing. They're grinning ear to ear. They're fleecing the flock. But what they don't realize is that while they have sheep in their jaws, they are in the jaws of the lion, Satan. That's what's happening. In some mysterious way, Satan is working through their sinful desires, their twistedness, and their seared consciences to bring about the teachings that he wants to feed out to the masses. That's what's happening. So like their prey... Paul says they are depraved in mind. They are led around by their own sinful appetites. Like, like they have a, a chain on their neck and they're getting pulled around on a leash. Paul says that they have been captured by Satan to carry out his will. That'd be a crazy thing to tell a false teacher. Like, don't you realize that you were captured by Satan to do his will? It's totally over their head, right? They don't see it. Peter tells us that these false teachers are slaves to corruption and that they are ignorant and unstable. They've lost control of the will. Jude remarks that despite all of their best efforts, they will destroy themselves in the pursuit of selfish gain. Just like Balaam destroyed himself. Just like in Kor's Rebellion, they thought that they were doing a good thing, deceiving the people. Well, they all ended up getting swallowed up in a big gaping hole. Satan has strapped dynamite to false teachers and he has sent them out among the flock in hopes that they'll blow themselves up and take down as many people with them as possible and we see that over and over again don't we we see it with carl lentz bill gothard jimmy swaggart cult leaders i know y'all have watched the same documentaries on netflix that i have it always ends up where everybody gets hurt the same thing is happening with countless false teachers and pastors all over this country that don't even make the news. They blow themselves up, destroying their lives, and disrupting the faith of millions. Which brings us now to 
the content of these false teachers. So we have the powers of hell working through false teachers with twisted desires and seared consciences, and now we're going to get to the content of what they actually teach. So look again at verse 3. Look here. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. That's their message. So what is that about? Well, it's helpful for us to know a little bit more of the background here, like what's going on in Ephesus. In Ephesus, these false teachers are coming up, and they had a, a background of Judaism, Jewish law and stuff. They're what we call Judaizers. And they taught that in order to be a Christian and receive the, the Jewish Messiah, you first had to actually become a Jew. So you had to follow a bunch of the Old Testament laws, which meant like you couldn't eat shrimp, and you couldn't eat bacon, and you couldn't eat stuff depending on what the hooves looked like. They had to follow those dietary laws. That's one thing. We get that. We see that in our Bible. But these Judaizers were a little bit different. They were kind of a different breed. They were also really into Jewish mysticism and a lot of like weird folklore. And so not only did they teach like, yeah, you can't eat this stuff, but they taught that you can't get married either. Like, just some kind of weird reason. Like we can only speculate on exactly what they were doing, but they were saying that, yeah, marriage is a bad thing. And if you want to be a real Christian, don't eat that, don't eat this, and don't get married. So here's why that matters. It matters because they were teaching a totally false gospel that will not save anybody. Salvation is a free gift of God for those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ, Period. But their teachings came along and they said, well, no, not exactly that. Like, yeah, sure, that's good, you know. But also, you got to do these works. They were twisting the doctrine of creation in order to twist the doctrine of salvation. And that's, that's not something we normally really think about, right? But Satan really wants you to think about the created order around you wrong. And he's using that as a, as a leverage point to disrupt your belief in the gospel. It's interesting. In Colossians 2, which Sarah read for us, Paul says that these false teachers were disqualifying people. So imagine it. Jesus has written our names in the book of life in heaven, and the false teachers actually think that they can come in behind him with a whiteout. Right? If Jesus has declared us clean, and the false teachers say, well, no, actually, you're unclean. Jesus has qualified us by his blood, and they come in and disqualify us with their rules. It's horrible, right? According to them, in order to be holy enough for God, you've got to meet their demands for holiness. Punish the body. Have an antagonistic relationship with creation. Wrestle your desire for food and crush any and all desire for sex or marriage, and then you will be holy and acceptable in God's sight. Make a mockery of creation. Make a mockery of the gospel. God says, repent and believe. And they say, do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Now you're thinking like, yeah, that's kind of cool, but I don't think I'm susceptible to this kind of false gospel. Well, I want to warn you that you are, and so am I. The message was compelling then, and it's compelling now. Why? Because... Humans have a bent towards self-justification. It's just what we do. 
And our favorite kind of self-justification is the kind that we can measure, you know, something that we can do it, just count the beans on. One way that people have tried to make themselves right with God is by following silly, arbitrary rules concerning the enjoyment of creation. Somewhere along the line, mankind got it in their head that holiness is, it comes along with unhappiness. You can't associate the two. And so the calculus is pretty simple. X makes me really happy. Well, if I can force myself to stop enjoying X, then God will have to accept me. He'll owe me something. We've seen that in the church. There have always been professing Christians who see themselves as more spiritual than everybody else because they follow a set of stricter rules that they made up. And it almost always centers on issues of the conscience. It's those areas where God hasn't said it so black and white that people can sneak in and say, ooh, God, I know you left it out, but like, here's a good rule that we all need to follow now. Things that are not sin in and of themselves, things that Christians are free to disagree on, that's where they make all these rules and, uh, and invent all these rules. And then it often comes with this uh, conclusion that if I sacrifice all these things, then God will now owe me something. It's pagan manipulation. It treats Almighty God like some kind of puzzle piece that you just got to go figure out. And when you figure it out, you get a big reward at the end. Just try all these different permutations and then he'll accept me and he'll obey my wishes. If I make this sacrifice, then God is indebted to me, which really just means I am God's master and God is now my servant. And this takes all kinds of forms. The purity culture movement. Remember that? (laughs) Well, I had good intentions. Basically just gave the impression that sex is just bad. And by avoiding it altogether, you can make yourself more pure for God. How often have we seen young people tie their assurance of their salvation to their abstinence? Or how often have we seen abstinence used as an argument for like why God should bless me and give me something? Or take dieting, the stuff that we put in our bodies or don't put it into our bodies. There's some use to that. There's nothing wrong with thinking about that sort of stuff. Could be wise. But it can easily cross over the line from wisdom and like some practice between you and God into this, this realm of self-justification for you, uh, for you to God. And uh, where do we see this the most, right? We see it's most prevalent with alcohol. There are a lot of good reasons not to drink. However, alcohol is not in and of itself a sin. Yet how often have we seen someone's assurance tied to their rules about alcohol? But God, I never drank. And he's like, what? <laughs> you know? Or how often have we seen this rule thrust on everybody else? If I can't drink, then y'all can't drink. All right, here's another one. I know that this is alive and well. You can enjoy music and the arts, but not too much, right? Not too much. If I throw out all of my rock and roll CDs and burn my Harry Potter books and cancel all my subscriptions except Pure Flix, then I'll be pure and holy before God. Or maybe I won't do all those things, but when I turn on Netflix, I'll be like, oh, I shouldn't, and then we'll just move on, right? Like, I'm so holy because I said that to myself. Now, all these things, like, we need to take a hard look at them. There's no doubt. I think this is a huge blind spot. It's, it's bad. The way that we consume the arts can be really bad. But that's not the point of this sermon. My point 
is that putting our enjoyment of beauty and creativity in a chokehold and some sort of effort to be holy to God or earn something from God is pagan. It falls squarely in the realm of the conscience. God says you can enjoy these things, and we should enjoy these things. We're free to enjoy them or abstain from them. Just however you do it, do it to the glory of God, as we're going to see in a moment. So one commentator, he, he sums up their teachings like this. He says, these are the mad superstitions of men who wish to obtain God's favor by such trifles and by contriving a carnal worship. They invent for themselves an idol in God's place. Self-justification by decreasing our joy in creation is a lie from hell. The gospel does not say that you must desire your, or you must uh, sacrifice your desire for marriage and sex and alcohol and movies and whatever else in order to be made right with him. It is a false gospel, and it destroys people's faith in, in Jesus. But Paul, he gives us a much better way in contrast to this, a way that permits pleasure and it promotes trust in Christ and it glorifies God. And that brings us to point number three, the Christian's thanksgiving. The Christian's thanksgiving. <clears throat> Look at verses three through five with me. False teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. As has already been alluded to throughout the service, God could have made this existence a whole lot less beautiful than he did. No colors, no variety, no animals, no mountains, no beach, no waterfalls. Could have just been like gray cubicles as far as the eye could see. But he didn't do that. Instead, he made things like love and friendship and jokes. And he made flowers and fragrances. He made taste buds and textures. We could have gotten all of our energy from photosynthesis, right? But instead... He, he gives us fennel and fig newtons and focaccia. God could have manufactured children in like a dust factory, you know, and just stamped them out. That's not what he does. Instead, it, children come from lives that have been woven together through lifelong companionship and, and a commitment of love. And then he craftily knits and forms children in the womb of their mother. That's incredible. He didn't have to do that. So why does God do it all like that? Well, Paul tells us, God made creation in all of its glory so that Christians, so that people who know the truth would enjoy his good gifts with a thankful heart. That's why he made it. So let me say all that another way. God made creation so that it would be received under two conditions. Belief and thanksgiving. We are supposed to believe what God said about creation. And then if we choose to partake in some part of creation, we're supposed to do that 
with thanksgiving. Belief and thanksgiving. So for example, God has told us in his word that in the beginning he made mouths and he made food and he made them very good. And then Jesus, when he came, declared that all foods are clean. Being convinced of this in our own minds, we can take food, eat food, and then say, God, thank you so much for that. That's it. That's why he made it. Paul basically says the same thing three times here. And you can kind of get lost in the weeds and can seem really confusing, but it's really not so so complicated. It's, It's what we just saw. So look again at verse 3. God created food to be received with thanksgiving by those who know the truth. Specifically, who know the truth that what God has created is good. Thanksgiving paired with belief. Then Paul says it again. Keep looking. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. We don't have to reject something that we know God says is good. We can take it, we can eat it, and we can give him thanks. One more way. This way is fascinating. He says it, that's creation, is made holy by the word of God and prayer, meaning like a prayer of thanksgiving. So when belief and thanksgiving come together, God is glorified by our enjoyment of it. And that's what Paul's getting at with this whole being made holy language. If we enjoy creation with a clean conscience that knows that God made this thing to be received and then give God thanks for it, then that thing that we are enjoying is made holy or clean to us. So take shrimp for an example. Shrimp is not made holy when it's forbidden and put up on a pedestal. Oh, almighty shrimp, right? Like, that, that's not, it's not made holy. Jesus already told us that it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. Thou shalt not be made holy by avoiding shrimp. However, food is made holy when you say, and on the fifth day, God created shrimp, and he made it very good. And all the animals of the earth have been given to me for food by the hand of my loving and kind creator. So I'm going to take this shrimp, and I'm going to savor this shrimp, and I'm going to give thanks to God for it. Now, that shrimp, a totally earthly, useless, carnal, insignificant thing, has been turned into something truly special. An object that is to be enjoyed to the praise and glory of our God and Maker. That is fascinating to me. Like, like I hope you see that. Belief and thanksgiving, they function as kind of a, a filter for the Christian. Christians receive the common, and by belief and thanksgiving, the common is turned into something holy. The material becomes spiritual. The worthless becomes worship. I don't know what else to say other than just to keep saying it's amazing. Like, I hope you see that that is truly incredible. Like, if we get this practice down, then our appreciation of the world will not lead us into sin, but it will lead us into worship. It'll actually serve our relationship with God in the way that it is supposed to. And then you're freed up to go enjoy more and more and more stuff. And if you do it the right way, God will be more and more and more glorified. Wow. But let me give that to you negatively. 
Romans 14.23 tells us that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Which is really just another way of saying whatever doesn't proceed from belief and thanksgiving is sin. So the devil's strategy is to disconnect our enjoyment of creation from those two things, from belief and thanksgiving. If he can get us to waffle on whether or not God permits something, or if he can get us to partake in something without giving God thanks, then he's messed the whole thing up. He's turned an act of what could have been worship into an act of sin. So in Ephesus, demons preached, did God really say? And instead of eating to the glory of God, people were abstaining in self-righteousness. No belief, no thanksgiving, no glorification of God. But the devil, he doesn't just try to starve us from pleasure. He also tries to choke us on pleasure. And that's the demon's playbook, right? Like, there's this godly middle, and he's constantly trying to push things to the edges, which the godly middle says, enjoy it and give God thanks. And the devil says, don't enjoy it and never give God thanks. Or enjoy it as much as you possibly can, right? Like, like more sex, all sex, all forms of pornography and promiscuity, more food, more luxury, glut yourself on all the delights of the world, and do it all without any reference to God, and do it all while totally ignoring your conscience. Taste the Creator's best gifts and do so with boredom. That's the game now. Enjoy the height of physical pleasure and make sure to pick up the bag of guilt on the way out the door. Belief and thanksgiving are lost in this flurry of joyless gluttony. And that just sounds miserable. And it is miserable. We become oblivious to God. We become thankless towards God. And we become enslaved to our passions. God is not magnified. And Satan laughs. The enemy, like, he's so crafty, brothers and sisters. Like We have to stay alert Stay diligent to his crafts and his snares and his schemes. He could take something so good and something really pretty obvious, like food goes in your mouth and give God thanks. And he can totally ruin it and and make it into a stumbling block for us. And he's done it for millions and millions and millions of people the world over. But we can sidestep his trap. That's where I want to end. I want to end on a practical note how we can sidestep the demon's false teachings and his false gospels, and instead enjoy creation with belief and thanksgiving. First, know your Bibles. We can only combat the devil's lies when we know the truth. Through his word, through God's word, we can know what is good and should be received with thanksgiving, and we can know what is sin and should be rejected. But it's precisely there, in those places where you do not know God's word, that Satan is going to find an edge. And he's going to sneak up in there, and he's going to try to twist that stuff around. So you've got to be shored up by God's word. Next, we need to enjoy creation. God made the world so that you would enjoy it and glorify him. And we know that because he's told us that in his word. It is very good. Corrupt by sin, yes but still very good. So let his word drive you into creation 
and let the proper enjoyment of creation drive you to his word and feed off of each other. Give yourself the freedom to jump into the good things that he has made. Again, like, holiness does not equal unhappiness. Holiness for the Christian means the right enjoyment of creation. We should out-enjoy non-believers, like, like so much. Like, it shouldn't even be close. Like, oh, I guess I just got to eat this thing, and that's cool. We get to eat things and then see heavenly realities through them. So enjoy creation. Enjoy food. Enjoy marriage. Enjoy vacations and sunsets and hikes and good movies and good books. Enjoy sports. Enjoy games. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your church. These are all gifts that God gave you that you are supposed to receive. Nobody likes getting a gift or giving a gift and someone saying, no, thank you. Receive it with thanksgiving. And then trace that beam up into heaven. Don't enjoy it in and of itself, but enjoy it to the glory of God. When our enjoyment of the gifts only serve to increase our love and enjoyment of the gift giver, Satan is totally disarmed. Totally. If you have a right relationship with his creation, what is Satan going to do? He's just going to watch you glorify God as you partake. Next, keep a clean conscience. It is a sin to go against your conscience. That little voice in your head that says, I don't know if I can do that. When that voice pops up, listen to it, okay? It's, it is a God-given gift to help steer you away from sin and towards holiness. It's not always right. It's, it's not always perfect. If you have to choose between your conscience and what God has clearly said, always go with, with God's word. But there's like, hey, like God says alcohol is good, but your conscience is like, I just don't know that I can do that. Do not partake. Listen to it. Here's another good rule of thumb. You're about to do something, and you're thinking, I don't know if I should do this. Ask yourself this question. Can I say thank you to God for what I'm about to do? If you cannot say, yes, Lord, thank you, and then go partake, then don't do it. Then don't do it. But now we've got to come to this next idea to kind of balance that, right? We should never excuse sin in our enjoyment of creation. Just because you know that God has created something good, and just because you convinced yourself that it's okay, that does not necessarily mean that it is permissible. As I mentioned, we live in a fallen world. Like, there's sin all over the place. God created food and sex, yes. But also, gluttony is a sin. And adultery is a sin. Or knowing that creation is good does not mean, it doesn't give us a license to smoke weed, to pleasure oneself, or drink too much. You can't use those kinds of excuses. Again, we have to know God's word, and then we need to invite our brothers and sisters into our lives to examine us and, and help us say, like, can I partake in this? Is this good? I think I want to, and I think I can give thanks, but I need you to weigh in too. Next, develop an attitude of constant gratitude. Pray without ceasing. And that should include a steady stream of thanksgiving to God. Like, do you have that kind of like in the back of your operating system? You know, thank you for this God. Thank you for this God. Thank you for this God. Like, like I want that. I want us to try to develop that. Because there's no shortage of things that we can thank God for. I mean, it's just one after the other. Remember that every good gift comes from our Father above and that we can never be too thankful. 
So be constantly grateful. Next, pray for meals. So of course, like, praying for meals is not something that we have to do. There's nothing in the Bible that says you must do that. And so we want to be careful not to make this like a ritualistic or legalistic thing. But it is a good idea. And maybe try to like pray over your meals, you know, better. <laughs> right? Like, try to break up the pattern of your mealtime prayers. If you're saying the same like six words of thanksgiving at your prayer before you eat every single time, I guarantee you've learned to like block it out by now. Right? So mix it up. Pray different links. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for those who have less than you. What a great time to remember your brothers and sisters who are doing without, as God has so graciously given to you. Pray for other blessings that God have given us, has given us that kind of like correspond with food. Like as you go to enjoy good food, give God thanks for the good food of his word. Right? As you go to enjoy good food, give God thanks that the bread of life came down from heaven and died for your sins. Let's reclaim prayer over our meals. Jesus broke bread and gave thanks, and we would do well to do the same. And then finally, hold fast to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because Jesus shed his blood on the cross. We are not saved by what we eat or don't eat. If we abstain... We don't do it to be saved. We do it as an act of worship to God. And if we partake, we do so with thankfulness. And God is glorified by that too. We know that we can receive what he permits with joy. And we know that by not partaking what he has forbidden, we're not missing out on anything. We know also that we're not going to get this perfectly right this side of heaven. We, we constantly mess this kind of stuff up in our relationship with creation. But God's grace is sufficient for us. And he's, he's going to carry us through. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he's going to help us to be more discerning. He's going to help us to be more thankful. I hope, too, you see that he's going to help us to enjoy creation more. And he's going to keep us until the very end, even though we'll consistently get that sort of stuff wrong. And finally, we know that the best things are yet to come. This world is just a shadow of heavenly realities. The Bible tells us that the substance belongs to Christ. What that means is, as one singer puts it, he made this world to look so nice. I wonder what the next one's like. And I hope as you partake in all these beautiful things in creation and give him thanks, that your heart is elevated to heaven. The God who made trees and marriage and love and tasty foods is going to be with us in his unadulterated glory face-to-face in a new creation. It's going to be awesome, and it's coming. Until then, let's watch out for demonic teachings, trust in God's word, and give him thanks for every good gift. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we go out from here, we would be thankful. The lunch that we're about to receive, our loved ones that we're about to hold a little tighter than usual. I pray, Father, that we would turn this into an act of praise and thanksgiving because you are so good and so kind. Protect us from the evil one who wants to twist these things into sin and elevate our eyes to heaven that we might magnify you every second 
in every day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.